everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. I am Michael Bradley, and this is episode number 23. This episode, we will be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 15. Before I get into that, though, I've got a just a couple bits of business to go through. First up is an email that I received back in the early part of May, uh, right um, right around the time my computer went belly up. Um, and it's from Steve Rogers in reply to episode 19, which was the episode where I covered the 1939 issue of New York World's Fair Comics. And Steve, the email is titled, A Few Thoughts on the World's Fair. And Steve writes, Hey Michael, I thought I'd add a few more tidbits about the fair. Of course it will be covered in 1940, but just thought I'd share a few more fun facts at least about the site of the World's Fair. For what it's worth, as I mentioned in my email about Lou Gehrig a few weeks back, I had thought the World's Fair comics was going to be discussed in that special first fifth week episode. And the Yankees, as well as the Giants and Dodgers, wore patches on their uniforms with the iconic Trilon and Perisphere. If I'm not mistaken, this fair is also the first time that the television was on display as well. While the buildings for the fair are long gone, the site, Flushing Meadows in Flushing, Queens, New York, is still a nifty park area. The only remnants, though, are the 1964 World's Fair Unisphere and Observation Towers, though in a severe and sad case of disrepair. Interestingly enough, the fairgrounds, thanks to the magic of the movies, came alive again in 2010, playing the role of Stark Expo in Iron Man 2. I didn't know that, and you know I've still not actually seen Iron Man 2. Um, I saw the first one, but I didn't actually see it until long after it had come out on DVD, so I really need to uh, get on it and see Iron Man 2 really soon. But Steve continues, speaking of that 1964 one, and granted this is more of a question to be dealt with by Billy Hogan and Superman Fan Podcast, but I searched for comic books related to the 1964 one, and can only find a Dell Gold Key Hanna-Barbera Flintstones at the New York World's Fair. Now, I enjoy the tales of the modern Stone Age family from the town of Bedrock, but I wonder why DC didn't take the opportunity to try their luck again. Perhaps the 1939 and 1940 issues underperformed so badly that they didn't deem it worth a try. I'm even more surprised that Marvel didn't give it a go as they had a major breakout star living literally 10 minutes away in Peter Parker Spider-Man, along with most of their superhero comics taking place in New York City as well. Anyway, that's all for now. Steve. And thanks for the email, Steve. I'm not sure either why they didn't put out an issue with the 1964 fair. Uh, From information we have today, it seems that the original World's Fair issue, or at least the 1939 one, wasn't the sales bonanza that they were expecting. So that could have been it. Plus, I don't think the 1964 fair was as big of a deal as the 1939-1940 one was. Um, I could be wrong on that, but there just doesn't seem to be the nostalgia for it as there does for the other. Or it could have just been the fact that the people who were in charge of the 1964 fair were different in addition to the changing staff at DC Comics. As I talked about in more detail last episode, during my spotlight on Vince Sullivan, it was Sullivan that had worked to get the connections and put the first issue together, and then those carried over to the 1941, even though Sullivan was gone from the company by then. 
1964, Sullivan had been gone from DC for more than two decades, and in fact was out of comics entirely at that point. DC had gone public by then, and Jack Leibowitz was running things by himself because of a, a head injury that Harry Donenfeld had suffered a few years prior that, for all intents and purposes, left him pretty much invalid. Um, plus, by 1964, DC's roster of books was divvied up between many editors. Um, Mort Weisinger had the Superman books, Jack Schiff had the Batman books, and a couple others. Julie Schwartz and Robert Kaniger had their own books. So, orchestrating a special one-shot anthology book to tie in with something outside of DC Comics probably would have been a lot more difficult to pull off in uh, 1964 than in 1939 or 1940, where there was just one editor doing the whole line of books. But thanks for the email, Steve. I also want to thank Steve for calling me out on a blunder that Mike and I made in episode 20. We got into the subject of various actors that had portrayed Perry White, but I neglected to mention that Michael McKean, who played the character on Smallville, was also still around. Great Caesar's ghost! So, sorry about that, and thanks to Steve for calling us out on it. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mort Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Alright, so Action Comics number 15. The cover to this book features Superman and was drawn by Fred Gardner, which makes it, like the World's Fair comic, a rare instance where Superman in these early years is drawn by someone outside the Schuster shop. And I'm pretty sure that this is the only Superman cover that holds that distinction until the shop is dissolved in the 1940s. 
Superman's costume is slightly different on the cover as well, which probably owes to the fact that it was drawn by someone other than Schuster. The biggest difference is that his cape is latched around his neck with a yellow band, rather than tucking into the sides of his collar like is traditionally done. And his belt buckle is also different, looking more like a just a regular belt buckle than an oval. And his trunks are a bit longer, kind of like gym shorts. The cover shows Superman, underwater, and he's latched onto a submarine and, and is about to give it a toss. From a window on the sub, and I don't think subs really have windows like that, but from a window, a gangster-looking type uh, peers out in shock. And this actually is something that happens in this issue. I like this cover quite a bit. I've, I've mentioned on the show before how much I like Fred Gardner's covers, and this one's no exception. It's a shame that he didn't do more Superman covers. And actually, it's a shame that more creators outside of Jerry Siegel and the Schuster shop period didn't. Uh, that's that's no slight at all to Siegel or Schuster or any of the other artists that worked on the character during this era, but it would have been interesting to see what kind of turns the character would have taken had there been some outside influence. Um, but on the other hand, I really like that his formative years were primarily guided only by his creators, so there's that too. The book was released sometime around June 29, 1939, and has an August cover date, and was the standard 10 cents for 64 pages of content. Our story was written by Jerry Siegel, illustrated by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, and edited by Vin Sullivan. It was originally untitled, but has since gained titles of Kid Town and Superman on the High Seas. Our 13-page story opens with a half-page splash showing Superman leaping high over an ocean liner as it sails out to sea. It's quite a nice splash. It's a bit sparse on details, but since it's an ocean, it doesn't really feel like it. Superman looks really great on this splash. He's a bit stockier than we've seen him, and his shield is colored with a yellow S and, a, and border on a red field, which is reversed from what we've seen it. Our introductory text is somewhat similar to what we've seen before. It reads, Leaping over skyscrapers, running faster than an express train, springing great distances and heights, lifting and smashing tremendous weights, possessing an impenetrable skin. These are the amazing attributes which Superman, savior of the helpless and oppressed, avails himself of as he battles the forces of evil and injustice. As our story begins, Clark Kent is called into his editor's office and assigned to cover something called Kid Town. As Clark reaches Kid Town, he's escorted to the office of its founder, a Mr. Holloway. Holloway explains that he was raised in the slums, and as he became an adult, he set his mind on providing that other children could be raised in better, healthier environments. And so he created Kid Town, which houses more than 1,000 boys and gives them the opportunity to move away from a life of crime and on to a more productive and worthwhile activities. Unfortunately, the venture has not been very successful, and Holloway laments that he's up to his neck in debt, and if he can't pay the mortgage within two weeks, Kid Town will be forced to close. Clark inquires about the amount of money he needs to avoid closing, and Holloway says that he needs at least $2 million to pay off the mortgage and be able to expand the facilities to take on the thousands of admission requests that they've had to reject. As Clark heads back to the office, he ponders Holloway's plight and decides that he wants to help. He says raising $2 million in only two weeks is most certainly a job for Superman.
And I would argue that Superman possibly has larger things to tackle, like wars or criminals or a certain mad scientist who's still at large. But a place like Kidtown, whose goal is to help disadvantaged kids reform into productive members of society, is exactly the type of thing that Superman, the champion of the oppressed, would tackle in this era. So it's not something I'm going to harp on. Anyway, Clark thinks to himself that he has $1 million from, quote, that oil stock manipulation case, unquote, but is unsure how he'll raise the other half of the money. The oil stock manipulation case is a reference to the Superman story in Action Comics number 11, which I covered back in episode 14. In that, Superman uncovered a scheme where a couple guys were selling oil stock for a rig that wasn't even in use. So he bought up all the stock, then put the rig into operation, then sold the stock back to the owners for $1 million, and then destroyed the rig, thereby giving the swindlers a case of their own medicine. So that's a nice callback to an earlier story, and we don't really see too much of that in this era, unless it's a direct follow-up like Superman being wanted for tearing down the tenements, or the return of the ultra-humanite. So, meanwhile, a nearby bank is being held up. As the robbers run from the bank, they are confronted, seemingly inadvertently, by Clark, who stands in their way. The robbers shoot at Clark, but as the bullets bounce off his chest, Clark just quips at the robbers, then body slams them into the concrete. Overjoyed that Clark has stopped the thieves, the bank manager hands Clark a check for $3,000 to say thank you, while the police officer tells him that he'll get another 2000 in reward money for aiding the capture of the thieves, as it seems that they were wanted men. With only $995,000 to go, Clark continues thinking over his good fortune, but thinking he still needs more money. As he's walking, another man happens to be walking behind him, and this man is thinking how he's got so much money and no idea what to do with it all. Here, I'll read his thoughts. Bah! How strange life is! Here I have so much money and I don't know what to do with it all, and my existence bores me. Kind of convenient, yeah? Clark needs money, this guy has money. Guess what's going to happen next? So just then, an out-of-control car comes out of nowhere. While the narrator doesn't bring it up, it seems Superman's war on bad driving wasn't quite as successful as it could have been. But anyway, the car rages down the road, nearly hitting Clark before crashing into a tree. The force from the impact knocks the tree over, falling on the man walking near Clark and pinning him to the ground. Clark sees the man pinned and thinks that he should save him, but that such a display of strength could give away that he is Superman. But, since he is the hero, Clark decides he must help the man, regardless of the effects on his secret identity, and he does the right thing by leaping over, grabbing the tree, and freeing the man. The man is distraught from the ordeal, but somehow unhurt. He praises Clark for his actions, saying that he owes him his entire life. The man then hands him a check for $10,000, a trifling sum, as he calls it, as a way of saying thank you for saving his life. Showing not one ounce of humility, Clark says if the man insists, he'll gladly take the money, and heads off, with only $985,000 left to raise. Later, back at the Daily Star, after Clark turns in his story on Kidtown, his editor tells him that Warren Kenyon, a famous explorer, is staying at a local hotel, and he wants Clark to interview him. During the interview, 
Kenyon tells Clark that he's just returned from a treasure hunt where he found a fortune. Clark congratulates him and says that locating buried treasure must be difficult. Kenyon says that locating it isn't necessarily the problem, but salvaging it afterwards. He hands Clark a map showing the location of a sunken Spanish galleon. He explains many treasure hunters have the map, but none have been able to retrieve the gold because, it, because the ship is too embedded in coral. Clark heads back to his office and, after turning in his story on Kenyon, asks his boss about taking a two-week vacation that's due to him, intent on going after the sunken gold. With Clark's story in the Daily Star, word spreads quickly of the sunken treasure, catching the eyes of many people, including gangs led by Big Boy Cheney and a man named Marchetti. Marchetti, keen on the idea of grabbing the treasure for himself, sends a thug named Muggsy to the Daily Star to find out more about Clark. So Muggsy heads to the paper and spies on Clark as Lois and the other co-workers wish him a good vacation. Muggsy thinks it's a bit suspicious that Clark is taking a vacation right after writing the story, so he follows Clark to the shipping office. There, Clark inquires about renting a boat, and the man at the office tells him he can rent a boat called the Dragon, but that he'll need to hire his own crew. Muggsy takes this information back to Marchetti, who deduces that Clark must be aiming to go after the treasure for himself. So Marchetti takes Muggsy and the rest of his crew back to the dock, where they proceed to beat the tar out of the guys waiting around to be hired on as crewmen. So they put them down, and a little later, Clark comes out, now wearing a spiffy captain's outfit, and hires Marchetti and his boys, not knowing that they are really gangsters. As Clark and his crew of rogues ship off in the dragon, meanwhile, Big Boy and his, uh, well, boys, break into a government navy yard and knock out the guards and hijack a navy submarine called the D-11. Submerging the sub below water, Cheney's gang heads for the treasure themselves. Word spreads to the wire news services about the stolen submarine, and Clark picks the story up on the ship's wireless. Marchetti's thugs are anxious to take Clark out, but Marchetti tells them to wait and let Clark locate the gold first. So the days pass, and both the Dragon and the D-11 head towards the location. The dragon reaches the spot, and Clark boards the diving bell and drops below the water. One of Marchetti's henchmen starts to sever the line. These are some very anxious thugs, I'm telling you. But again, Marchetti stops him. As Clark reaches the ocean's floor, he spots the wreckage of the galleon and calls back up to the crew, letting them know he's discovered the ship. With the ship found, Marchetti gives the order, and Muggsy takes an axe to the lifeline, severing it in two. A short while later, Marchetti radios down to the diving bell. When he receives no reply, he assumes Clark is dead and hoists the bell back up. However, when the bell surfaces, Marchetti is shocked to see that Clark is gone and a huge gaping hole in the side of the bell. Back underwater, we get a brief flashback showing us that Clark, unaffected by the lack of oxygen because, as we find out, Superman can hold his breath for hours, has smashed his way out of the diving bell. Then, shedding the disguise of Clark Kent, Superman heads towards the entrapped ship. Suddenly, a shark lunges at Superman, followed by two more. The sharks circle their prey, drawing in closer and closer, and soon all four figures are engaged in a life-and-death battle. The shark's mighty jaws clench down on the Man of Steel, but fail to penetrate his invulnerable hide. Superman finally defeats one of the sharks by what looks like cracking its skull. 
With one shark dead, the others flee, and Superman gets back to work, tearing through the coral that surrounds the ship. Just as Superman makes his way into the hull, the D-11 gets within sight of the sunken ship. Aboard the D-11, Big Boy tells two thugs to investigate. Back inside the galleon, Superman discovers the skeletonized body of the ship's crew. Investigating further, he discovers the treasure chest, full of gold bullion and coins. Just as Superman is checking out his booty, he hears Chinese men approaching. The thugs enter the ship, in nifty deep-sea diver outfits, I have to point out, and as they do, they freak out as they see one of the galleon's crew members coming after them. Thinking they've just seen a ghost, the two thugs turn tail and run. And it's at this point we find out it wasn't a ghost after all, but Superman, who had donned the crew member's outfit. But why did he do this? Just for fun, it seems, because as Superman is laughing at the men, he thinks how fun the episode was, but wonders who they actually are. So we have another in what is a long line of frat boy pranks from the Man of Steel. Anyway, as the thugs return to the sub, they tell Big Boy that they saw a ghost. But Big Boy, <laughs> Big Boy just accuses them of uh, spreading a cock and bull story. One of the thugs looks out at the periscope and sees Superman headed straight for the sub. Big Boy checks out the situation for himself and can hardly believe his eyes. Startled at the sight, he orders the thugs to get the sub moving as soon as possible. Back outside, Superman has spotted the sub and recognized it as the stolen D-11. Superman grabs the sub, stopping it in its tracks. He then rips off the sub's propeller, ensuring it won't go any further. The sub's jarring stop results in quite a commotion inside the sub, as Big Boy threatens to shoot his crew if they don't get the sub moving again. Superman tows the sub along the bottom of the ocean before turning, grabbing the sub with both hands, and with a spiral that would make Johnny Unitas jealous, tosses the sub straight up into the air. The sub rockets out of the water, and it splashes back down in an, into the water, right next to a Navy battleship that had been out in pursuit of the stolen sub. After some shots from the battleship, Big Boy and his crew surrender, because, hey, they may be criminals, but they're not dumb enough to take on the United States Navy. So shortly, Superman, now back as Clark, pops his head above water and is spotted by the crew of the Dragon. You know, the ones that left him to die? Despite this, the crew brings Clark back on board, and together, over the next several hours, they work on salvaging the Galleon's booty before heading back to land. On the voyage home, Clark inspects the airline and discovers it was cut. But, instead of, you know, doing anything about it, he heads to his cabin for a nap. Because a sleepy man of steel is a cranky man of steel. Okay, he's not really sleeping, but it seems odd that he would just go to his cabin rather than trying to take care of these guys who are obviously criminals. But, thinking that Clark is asleep... Marchetti and the boys decide to make use of the situation and plot to take Clark out for good. Again. So that they can claim the money for themselves. Bugsy slips into Clark's room, brandishing a knife, and violently slams it down towards Clark's chest, only to have the knife shatter into fragments. The attempted stabbing wakes Clark, who, might I add, isn't wearing his glasses at this point, and Clark replies with a serving of knuckle sandwich to both Muggsy and Marchetti. As the ship returns to shore, Clark turns Marchetti, Muggsy, and the rest of the crew over to authorities, charging them with mutiny. The next day, he visits Kidtown, and Holloway tells him that an anonymous person, 
had sent a $2 million donation, thus saving Kidtown and all its children. Clark replies that even though the donation was anonymous and that Holloway can't say thanks to the party, he's sure that helping Holloway's cause is thanks enough. The end. And what a fun little story this was. When it started out with Clark going to Kidtown, I thought it would end up being the kind of story we've seen before, you know, where Holloway is a crook trying to take advantage of the kids, or there's thugs trying to make money at the expense of Kidtown. But I was pleasantly surprised when it went in a different direction. I liked, for a change, taking Superman out of the city and putting him in new surroundings. The underwater stuff was really cool, and nothing like we've seen so far. Uh, the idea of Superman battling a shark, I really like that. But unfortunately, much like the lion fight uh, in the circus episode from Action Comics number 7, it just wasn't as exciting or dynamic as it could have been. We've seen Superman tossing around cars and busting through walls and shrugging off bullets. And just how cool would it have been to see him fighting a whole school of sharks? But Superman really plays a minor part in this story, because it's really a Clark Kent story. It's Clark and his role as reporter that finds out about Kid Town, and then later about the buried treasure, and it's Clark that goes after the treasure and only changes to Superman when he's trapped in the diving bell. Interestingly, Superman doesn't even appear in the story until page 7, which is more than halfway through the story, and he spends the entire time underwater. Um, it's an interesting take, but again, one that I'm guessing we'll see less and less of as we go on. And speaking of Clark, things that uh, Clark does, how about that bit with him stopping the bank robber in broad daylight, still dressed as Clark, glasses and all? There's no mention whatsoever that people probably saw bullets bouncing off his chest, and this is certainly not the protect his identity at all costs Clark Kent that will become cliche. Um, that's highlighted even more in the next scene when Clark actually pauses to ponder the ramifications of saving the guy, you know, without changing first, but then ultimately sacrifices and goes ahead with it. And I kind of like that. Um, I like the Superman that's proactive and being the savior and the, of the helpless and oppressed, even if it might mean sacrificing his own identity. One thing I couldn't help but wonder about, and that is if Big Boy Cheney might have been a tip of the hat to Big Boy Caprice of Dick Tracy fame. Dick Tracy, it's not foreign to me, but I'm far less familiar with the particulars than I probably should be. I know Big Boy had appeared by this time. Uh, he first appeared in 1931, but I couldn't dig up any information on whether or not he was called Big Boy Caprice at this time or not. But even if that last name hadn't surfaced by this time, the name uh, still could have been a nod. Or not. I mean, we'll, we'll likely never know, unfortunately. At the end of the story, there is an ad promoting the Sandman in Adventure Comics and the Batman in Detective Comics. The Batman art in this ad looks to me like it's from issue number 29, which was the most recent issue when the story was published. The Sandman art, it's not from the World's Fair comic, so I assume that it's from Adventure Comics number 40, but I've not read that issue. Uh, maybe someone who has can write in and confirm that. This story, including the ad, has only seen two reprints, first in Superman The Action Comics Archives Volume 1 
and then more recently in Superman Chronicles Volume 2. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second... Hey there, webheads! 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed, and to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies, and what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spin of Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time! So strap yourself in, and here's the hosts! This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work! Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why, no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the Amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. Other features in this issue are the usual suspects. We've got Pet Morgan, Marco Polo, Clip Carson, Tex Thompson, Chuck Dawson, and Zaytara, the Master Magician. The Tex Thompson story here introduces a character named Gargantua T. Potts, who has the distinction of being one of the first, if not the first, recurring black character in a DC comic. Unfortunately, the character is a horribly racist stereotype, so the less said about him, the better. Um, he will only be around for a year before being written out and replaced by a female character going by the name of Miss X. This issue also has a full-page black-and-white ad promoting All-American Comics and Movie Comics, the two books All-American Publications was putting out at this time. And it also has a full-page black-and-white ad for the World's Fair comic, which, like I said, I covered back in episode 19. And it also has the coupon where you can cut the coupon out and mail it in and order the comic that way if you're unable to make it to the fair. We also have our very first Superman of America page. At the top, beneath the Superman of America logo and an awesome Schuster-drawn image of our hero, is a special message from Superman himself. He says, You will notice that beneath the name of the club, Superman of America, the three links of forged steel in which are placed the three words strength, courage, and justice. Purposely, and for a most particular reason, was this symbol used in connection with the name of our organization. These three ideals or virtues are bound together, as it were, by bands of the world's strongest metal, and in so joining them form a chain of such invulnerable goodness that every man, woman, and child should strive to be linked with it. 
On this planet Earth, there always has been, and the chances are there always will be, a confusing mixture of good and evil. This same condition existed even on the planet Krypton, from whence I came as a baby. Perhaps the forces of evil outbalanced those of goodness and justice, and for that reason Krypton was blasted out of the universe. No one will ever know the cause of the abrupt and appalling disintegration of the planet of my birthplace, but we all realize only too well that when evil overcomes good, misery and heartaches follow in its wake. This, then, is my mission here on the planet Earth, to wipe out the paralyzing influence of evil, and to strengthen and advance the ideals of justice and righteousness. It is my sincere wish that each and every member of the Superman of America will strive to his utmost to assist me in this fine endeavor. Then at the bottom, below Superman's special message, we have an invitation to join the club, directions on how to do that, the benefits, and a coupon that you can cut out and mail in if you want to join the club. And we've also got Superman's secret message, which can be decoded using code Krypton9 on the Superman of America decoder. And the message is, strength, courage, and justice should be the aspirations of all Supermen of America. For all intents and purposes, this Superman of America is really our first step towards a friendlier Superman. As you can tell from the opening text, the tone is somewhat different from the attitude we've seen Superman have to this point. And I don't know who wrote this, whether it was Jerry Siegel or Vin Sullivan or someone else. It really doesn't feel like Siegel to me much at all. And my gut tells me that it was probably Vin Sullivan. You'll also notice that in the text, Superman mentions that he's from Krypton, and even seems to indicate that he has some type of knowledge about what kind of place Krypton was. To date, there has been no mention in the comics or in the newspaper strips that Superman knows where he's from or how he happens to have such fantastic abilities. So again, even though this is more of an advertisement than a story, I really found that to be historically significant. And I really dig this Superman of America Club stuff, and I'm glad we're moving into the era of the books, because it's, it's just representative of a different kind of attitude, not only when it comes to Superman, but when producing the comics themselves. Other books out in June 1939 included Movie Comics No. 4, an all-American book. Adaptations in this one include Blue Montana Skies, starring Gene Autry, and Streets of New York, which starred movie comics regular Jackie Cooper. There was also Action Comics number 14, which Michael Kaiser and I covered back in episode 20, and More Fun Comics number 45, with a really nice Craig Flessel cover that shows a mountaineer being menaced by a brown grizzly bear. There was also Detective Comics number 29, with Batman's third appearance and second cover. The Batman story here saw the Batman squaring off against the menacing Dr. Death. This issue also sees Mart Bailey taking over for Joe Shuster illustrating the Bart Regan spy strip, but uh, Jerry Siegel is still writing. And this issue also has the last Jim Chambers drawn Crimson Avenger strip. That strip won't appear again until issue number 37 of Detective. And while that story is written by Chambers, it's drawn by someone else, and after that it goes entirely to other creators. According to Jerry Bales's Who's Who of American Comic Books, Chambers did some work for Dell and other small publishers over the next decade, but then after that there is no information on him, so 
it's likely he left comics entirely. The biggest non-Superman book of the month was Adventure Comics number 40, with the debut of the Sandman strip in that title. The Sandman first appeared in the 1939 issue of World's Fair Comics, which, as I said, I covered back in uh, episode 19, but here in Adventure Comics is where he'll make his home, and he'll go on to have quite a long run in that title, so we'll be seeing more of him in the uh, upcoming episodes. And he's definitely DC's biggest character to debut to date, other than Superman or Batman. And finally, there was All-American Comics number 5, another All-American book, obviously. And it has the second Red, White, and Blue story credited to Jerry Siegel, because the strips and issues 2 through 4 are not credited to any writer. And it also has the beginning of an adaptation of the Broadway play The American Way. My name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world and when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. 
Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Thank you everyone for joining me for another episode. Next time out, we'll be looking at the seventh storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. In the meantime, if you have questions, comments, etc., those can be sent to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I also invite you to stop by the website, which you can find at greatcrypton.com, for show notes for this and all episodes. I've also been posting some other Superman and comics-related stuff there from time to time that you might enjoy. At the site, you'll also find the RSS feed, as well as a link to the show's Facebook page. I am also on Facebook. If you'd like to friend me, you can just search my name, Michael Bradley. And if you do send me a friend request, you might want to just stick a note in there uh, that you listen to the show. Um, sometimes I get friend requests from people I don't know, and if I, if I don't know them, if I don't know they listen to the show, I'm, I'm probably not going to accept the request. But um, just stick a little note on there when you send the request that you listen to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman or if you listen to The Batman Show and uh, to let me know. At the website, you'll also find the iTunes link. And if you subscribe via iTunes, please feel free to leave an iTunes review. We haven't really had too many of those lately, and I'd like to see more because I really do feel that it helps people find the show. So if you use iTunes, drop by and post a few words, and I'd really appreciate that. The show is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, where you can find many great Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. And finally, I invite you to check out my other show, Legends of the Batman, which I co-host with Michael Kaiser, where we are covering everything Batman from the beginning. You can find that at batmanlegends.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, everyone, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. This is your lucky day, kid. The big break most people only dream about. You get to write a story with Perry White. <laughs>